The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. As we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk about uh, data breaches and um, cybersecurity with an expert in the field from IBM Security, the principal consultant for cyber crisis management, Lamore Kessem, who joins me by phone. Good morning, Lamore. Um, welcome to the show. And am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you did great. Thank you, Tom. How are you? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Um, what got you interested in cybersecurity? How can you not be interested in it? That's the question. <laughs> That's the perfect answer, Lamore. You should always be doing something you feel that way about. But what what is the, the biggest challenge for people who work in cybersecurity? Is it foreign hackers or is it the... Uh, you know, the fishers that are trying to scam money? So the biggest problem for cybersecurity is actually somebody else. It's the companies that are out there that are, you know, that should be working a little harder to be more secure, um, especially our critical infrastructure and the backbone of the economy, which is a group of sectors that are, you know, transportation, healthcare, um, industrial firms and all those uh, energy and so on uh, these are probably our biggest worries and concerns and that's what keeps us up at night right we want to make sure that these companies are more secure um, in terms of the the trouble from externally 
there are two major groups. You know, there's cyber criminals, right? They're from small to big, just like any crime. You have, like, small fish and big fish, right? Sure. Um, and then there are nation-state attackers that come from different adversarial nations. This is no fun for anyone. Those are very sophisticated attacks. They have very sophisticated tools that are super hard to detect. So this is always a, another issue that uh, we're dealing with almost on a daily basis. Who are the real uh, the real targets of of either of those groups the the criminal element or nation states that are you know just causing mischief uh, for the U.S. Um, who are their targets primarily? Is it the low hanging fruit, the people that are just uh, open and available, or are there people um, and institutions that they especially want? to get into so i want you to think about it a little bit like you know think about a criminal there is there are criminals that pickpockets right so those may be the phishing the kind of fishers that send you an email or an sms trying to get your banking information or, or payment card information and try to go use your card right so like picking your pocket they want to get a little bit of money from a bunch of people but then you can go up higher and higher and higher, all the way till you get to crime syndicates, right? The big mobsters and all those kinds of things. That is also uh, happening in, this, in the world of cyber crime. You have crime syndicates. They don't have to be local. They can be in a completely different country, but they could be targeting uh, countries where the economies are stronger, where the money they get is better, and they're going to also be more, um, you know, safer from law enforcement because their local law enforcement isn't after them. They're not doing anything bad in their own country. So um, so that's the kind of stuff we see on the cybercrime side. And the nation states, they actually have nowadays very diverse groups that work for them, that work in, in militaries, that will target different sectors. And they have different goals. So, for example, they can have... A, um, a team or a platoon that is like a cyber platoon that goes after intellectual property from defense contractors and defense companies. Or maybe they want to get technology. Why should they invest? They, they don't want to do R&D and, and go and invest a ton of money on smart people. They can steal it once you've done it. So they do that. They go and look for intellectual property, and they go and look for what universities are investigating and researching, and they steal that. And so um, they have different goals, you know. Uh, they want to look at what um, countries could be opposing them, what they can find out in terms of espionage. So instead of sending people over, they'll do espionage over the Internet. So all these things are uh, things that they do, and, and accordingly, they mark their different targets. Uh, so target, and the target could be anyone. It could Limor, be myself and yourself, and it could be any kind of business. Limor, when people are looking for um, to steal technology, and they're going to try to, you know, hack people that, that work in the technology field, don't the people working in technology have the skills to put up the... the the best firewalls and and defenses against those incursions or are, are is is it just um there's always a way to get through unfortunately i would lean towards there's always a way to get through it doesn't matter how secure it is 
And they find different ways. They will not use the run-of-the-mill methodologies or tools. They would have very specific and new and unknown uh, exploits. That's called a zero day, meaning nobody ever found out about it or alerted about it. Uh, or, you know, they might just steal the identity of somebody trusted and be able to get through their device, to compromise somebody's device who has, you know, certain privileges on the network and access to very important things. And they just lurk around and wait to see what they can get and what you know who that person communicates with. They can pretend to be that person. They can do a lot of things. So, unfortunately, they find ways to get through. Are there operating systems that are better than others for keeping your information secure? And and I'm thinking, you know, of course, the the big ones that come to mind are, you know, Windows and Linux. So, you know, when it comes to operating systems, it's not about if they're better or worse. It's about how prevalent they are. So cyber criminals and any kind of attacker, if they develop something that's going to attack other people, they want to get as much of a market share as they can. So if most people are using the Windows PC, then that makes their life easier because they're more likely to hit, to make a good hit, right? They probably would land on a Windows PC. They're less likely to end up on Linux. However, the more sophisticated attackers are looking for those Linux machines because those are probably operated by, you know, targets that are more suitable to what they are looking for. Uh, maybe researchers or security people or, you know, other people in, in that realm. Um, we also see less malware on more closed systems like uh, Mac systems are, are known to not have as much malware and attacks on them, but they're not completely exempt. It's just a matter of, you know, the foothold that the attacker wants to get. And who are the, are the attackers? The attackers could really be anyone. They could be criminals from different parts of the world. Sometimes they're, you know, single-person operations or a few people, and they could be crime syndicates of over 100 people at a time. Uh, the major crime syndicates are the ones that cause the most damage. They earn anywhere, you know, they earn billions of dollars a year from their exploits. And, it, you know, we'll see them mostly coming in from Eastern European countries. Um, they're highly sophisticated, organized like a business. They actually have, you know, management and they have people working for them on the IT side and, and infrastructure and all the different resources and cloud people and security people. They're um, highly equipped in terms of the staff that they have and they have a lot of expertise. So coming up against them also demands the equal and higher expertise in order to find out about their attacks and be able to counter them. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're successful because they bring that kind of sophistication to organizations that might not have um, you know, the same amount of protection or that they just found a way to, to get through. There's um, my significant other, Sandy, has been getting phone calls from people pretending to be accounts that she has had in the past, claiming that there are unpaid balances and so on, and asking her to... Uh, go to a particular website. Is there a lot of that that blends um, uh, 
mobile devices, telephones, and so on with uh, cyber um, locations? There's a lot of stuff happening on mobile devices, right, uh, especially on Android-based devices. Uh, there's a lot of mobile malware. They're trying to get people's, uh, you know, credentials for their applications on there, especially banking apps. And then also, if you know, they, they will run a transaction, a fraudulent transaction. person gets an SMS code. They will hijack <clears throat> that code and, and use it. So this is happening on mobile devices a lot. Um, again, it's, it's cyber criminals that have monetary profit on their mind. They want to get little bits of money here and there. They typically set these transactions to, to be, you know, to a certain amount of money that's not going to attract extra verifications from the bank. Uh, sometimes they do, you know, more hefty setups for their crime. So the, to receive such a phone call, it's basically they're trying to direct her to go to a website where they're probably going to ask for her account credentials, say log into the account or whatever, and steal the credentials so they could take over the account. Maybe they're going to ask for payment card information or bank account information, those kinds of things. It's probably a financial attack. Whether it happens a lot, definitely happens a lot. Fraud is a major, major thing, and uh, one of the of the things that we're seeing a lot is that they do go after, you know, more senior citizens. They're trying to look for people who are maybe have a lesser awareness of these kinds of crimes out there, and uh, it's definitely, you know, it's it's not only very prevalent; it's growing over time. Should you ignore those things, or is there? something you should do when you suspect something isn't quite right? You can either ignore it uh, or you can report it to something called the IC3. So the FBI has a reporting mechanism on their website. You just go there, you say, want to report something, you can report it. Um, it also can be reported to the phone company so they can see where these messages are coming from or where these calls are coming from, although a lot of times they could be... Um, you know, coming like from a fake phone number or whatever, obfuscated numbers and so on. But, you know, reporting it helps because uh, it's also, it creates a statistic that we can refer to and also they could probably uh, correlate some information from a few people and then maybe catch these people that are doing this. Limor, I have to uh, take a short break here, but I want to talk some more about this. I especially want to talk about what's going on when... Um, when there are ransom demands, um, usually those tend to be with businesses and stuff. But I want to talk about some of these other areas of, of uh, issues with cybersecurity. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? I have to go to break for a few minutes. Absolutely. Okay. My guest is uh, Lamore Kassam, and she is the Principal Consultant for Cyber Crisis Management with IBM Security. And we're going to talk some more with uh, Lee Moore after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are uh, WFOVLP, Our Voices Radio 92.1 FM Flint. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, so don't... Uh, touch that dial don't click that mouse and don't forget we have an election going on today a primary election and uh, the polls are open till 8 p.m so be sure and get out and vote we'll be back with more right after this 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about cybersecurity with um, a uh, representative from IBM Security, Lemore Kessem, who joins me by phone. Lemore, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. You bet. It's my pleasure. Um, I, I mentioned something I've always I've, I've been reading about, but I don't understand particularly well, is the um, this notion of uh, like our, our our county government recently went through this within the last year or two, where all of a sudden they they didn't have access to any of their computer uh, work. And, and they had to pay a ransom to get access to their own information. What is that? How does right. that work? And, and how do criminals benefit from that other than the ransom payments? So I'll give you a quick rundown of what this thing is, right? It started as something called scareware. It was a fake antivirus that came on your computer as a malware from somewhere, from maybe a spam email, whatever. And it tell you, oh, you have all these viruses, you better install this thing, and it costs $100, whatever. Then they saw that this wasn't working so much anymore, so they actually started doing something called encryption. They lock up the data with a special algorithm. It's called an encryption algorithm that's used typically to make sure that nobody can read the data that you have, let's say, between yourself and someone else, between yourself and your bank, whatever. This is where encryption is used legitimately. The criminals started saying, okay, let's lock up people's information, their computers. They can't use them anymore. So they'd lock up all your family photos and all your files, and you can't get to anything. And they say, send me a gift certificate for $200 or whatever. They just collect these like little you know amounts of money from people. And they just keep doing that until the crime syndicates came into the picture and said, what is this chump change? If I target a business and I sit long enough in their network, I can lock up a lot of data and get a lot of money. And over the years, over the past decade, they have increased this gradually from you know, asking for a few dozen thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars to now they're asking for sometimes, you know, if it's not five, six million dollars, it's 50 million dollars. And they've become ever so strategic about it. Like, for example, at some point they extorted a supplier that works with Apple just before launch, making sure that this is, that the extortion money is really high because if they don't pay, it's going to destroy the entire launch. So these are the things that they're doing and thinking about. And once the data is locked, okay, some of these criminals have really good encryption knowledge. They're skilled. You cannot break it. It's either you pay them or you don't, but you can't break it. Others are not as great. You know, they're not very good at it. Maybe they're using some some makeshift thing they made, and it could be broken. So in some cases, our researchers were able to break it, you know, break malware like this. Uh, and it really depends on the case. But this is how it's happening. And beyond getting a ton of money from companies, this kind of crime just keeps financing the next problem. You know, the more we pay extortion fees or companies end up paying for, you know, having no choice or really 
whatever whatever is happening that causes them to have to pay, it keeps feeding this vicious cycle called ransomware. Well, how would someone um, be able to get away with that without having, you know, either the the encryption that they um, put into on on the uh, information? Um, how can mm-hmm. how is that not traceable? And and what about the collection of money? How do they collect the money without getting caught? What they're doing is in the past they used to ask for gift certificates, right? Like something that you can get into like cash and once it's gone, you cannot trace really where it went. Um, And the other thing that the crime syndicates are doing, they're demanding that this be paid in cryptocurrency. So whether it's Bitcoin or other types of coins, they're going to ask for that to be sent over to them. And then they don't just go to that one wallet and empty it and go home. What they do is they'll divide it into a bunch of different payments and start sending it all over the place. This is called the Bitcoin mixing. So it's like putting a bunch of them in a blender and making it untraceable. You don't know anymore which particle was which because it's, it's blending and mixing them and then they come away with the full amount on the other end, untraceable. And they have groups, actual organized crime groups that do the money laundering part for them. So they work with all these middlemen, just like any big crime organization, any big mob. It's the same thing. Sometimes they're just a part of a mob, a street-level mob. And so um, they will work with overseas uh, gangsters and, and groups that may be along the borders of China and Russia. This is one of the, you know, how we look at the drug routes around the world. It's very similar to how that operates. Uh, and so this is how they make the money, this is how it's untraceable, and this is how they launder it at the end of the day. It just seems like, um, you know, that that because everybody's all connected um, through the Internet, that there'd be some way to, to, to trace back on the encryption or the money routing, something that, that would make it possible for you know, people with a lot more skills than I have, obviously, <laughs> more. But, um, right. But th- but they could track these people down. That it would be very difficult to be completely untraceable in this day and age. So it is a little bit like hunting down ghosts. But I have to say that law enforcement is having more and more success because over the years, there have been um, <clears throat> departments in law enforcement set up for cyber to help uh, hunt down cyber criminals. Uh, it also requires a lot of cross-border collaboration. It's really hard to go from the U.S. jurisdiction and hunt down a criminal down in Eastern Europe in some one of those countries where they don't have extradition laws, where they're not collaborating, they're not helping with anything. It has to go through organizations like the Interpol and the Europol and all these big, big operations are taking place. There are people being brought to justice in the United States and serving sentences, very lengthy sentences in the United States. So they're not always very, very good at keeping themselves out of trouble uh, or out of the hands of the law. And, uh, you know, when it comes to encryption, is just encryption. It could be used by anyone for anything, for good things, for bad things. Uh, it's, not, it's not helping us fi- figure it out. Um, but it's those cross-border collaborations that are very uh, laborious to do. 
And I have to say, police is making strides. We just have to see more of it over time. Where are the people coming from that are uh, uh, that are that are helping with the investigation side of of cyber crime? Um, is it is it like we see in the movies? Is it <laughs> some some hacker that gets recruited by law enforcement? Some cases. <laughs> really? In some cases, you need someone that can think that way and understand these things and have the right... You have to figure out what... It's like criminologists, right? If they work in criminal justice, they have to kind of figure out what is the attacker thinking and how they're doing things. Sometimes that's the case. Most of the time, it's actually people from government, from the NSA, people from the FBI. I could be people working for different vendors who stand out with their skills and the things that they can uh, do and help with. Um, so a lot of times just vendors are helping the police and there are special conferences and places where they can convene and, and you know, collaborate with each, with each other. Um, sometimes the feds would come to certain vendors and ask, hey, do you have information about this? Can you give this, can you share this information with us? Things like that, this kind of collaborations with industry and government are happening, and this is how um, some criminals are brought to justice at the end of the day. I know there's a, a college um, near here that, um, that has a, a program um, where in their, their uh, computer classes and so on, they, there are some classes set up that actually teach and explore hacking and and they they compete with other colleges that are doing similar programs I, and I don't know if I'm explaining it very well because it sounds like they're teaching people no, you how are. to go out you and, are explaining it well um, it yeah but it, it it sounds like they they could very easily be <laughs> training the next wave of cyber criminals but it's amazing what these young people can do in a very short time Indeed, I agree. And, you know, hacking in itself is not a crime. Hacking is uh, is one way for us to understand. It's almost like having an immune system. It's to understand how something can go wrong so we can make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, so if you, you know, you, you get these people sitting and looking at a certain website and trying to attack it in different ways, they could tell you, oh, it's pretty secure. We did a bunch of things that didn't succeed. Looks like it's pretty secure. Or they could say, hey, you know, I was able to get in through this way, that way, and this way. And if you fix it now, before a criminal gets to it, you're going to be a step ahead. So this is why it's really good. It's really good to start young. I absolutely agree that there is a big role here for the parents and teachers to make sure that these young people go the right way. You know, go to the, to the helpful and legal way. But that is something that parents and teachers do anyway. You want to make sure that young people go the right way anyway and, and choose the right professions and uh, don't become criminal down the line. Becoming a criminal is a, a personal decision, right? Uh, you know, myself, yourself, we, we decided not to be criminals in life because of our education and upbringing. So it's the same thing with hacking. For me, you know, if you're you're brought up a certain way and you have certain values, the chances of becoming a criminal are less, even if you're a hacker. Is this um, as things become more and more t 
technologically sophisticated, as we rely on it more, you know, for, for infrastructure like power and lights and, and uh, heating and cooling and, and all of these everyday things in life. I mean, we've got, <laughs> you know, I, I do my show in Flint, Michigan, and, and we still make a lot of cars in this area, and there are a lot of them just sitting there because of the inability to get chips. <laughs> you know, more and more things are becoming uh, computerized, and there's more and more technology and everything. Does that mean there's a lot more stuff that can go wrong and where our our institutions can become vulnerable to this kind of crime, and is that a growing field to, um, you know, search for weakness? And, and is that something young people that are interested in computers might consider as a career going forward? All the answers to these are yes, yes, and yes. And so, <laughs> firstly, you know, when we talk about critical infrastructure, the backbone of the economy, all these sectors we talked about, like healthcare, transportation, industrial sector, sector finance, sure. all these companies have something in common. They have more than just computers on their premises, right? If you look at an industrial firm, they probably have a plant floor. If it's the energy, they have a grid or maybe they have a power plant or maybe they have a nuclear plant and God knows, you know, all those different things. They don't just have an IT department looking over these operational technologies. So these things have existed for many years. Some of them haven't been updated for a long time and they are very vulnerable or the connection, the remote connection between the IT, the, the more corporate environment to that operational plant environment is vulnerable, is outdated, is not monitored properly. And this is where cyber criminals and nation state attackers are looking to create impact or to, you know, create disruption and cause problems. It's definitely a big concern. Last year, the Biden administration released an executive order to all critical infrastructures, warning them and saying, listen, there's a ton of adversarial nation-state attacks. You need to step up your security. Here's how you can do it, giving them very specific advice, giving them advice especially to start using something called zero trust. This is a doctrine for organizations to limit the access to their networks, make them less trusting. So that, you know, if somebody is accessing the network in a strange hour from a strange country, it's not going to be possible. So those are the kinds of things that they've been told to do. In our report that we have now, the cost of a data breach report, we're unfortunately seeing that a year after that executive order, 80% of those critical infrastructure companies we talked to said they haven't even started yet implementing any of those extra security measures. So this is definitely a very concerning element. Um, and, you know, and like I told you in the very beginning of our talk, the one thing that makes us not sleep at night is those organizations that are not securing themselves enough, and there's a lot to do there. Uh, now, whether younger people can start looking to become part of this workforce, this is, I, I think, the best thing that could happen because there is a major, major skills shortage in cybersecurity. There are over 5 million open jobs globally and hardly anyone to fill these jobs. So the more people start getting interested in computer science or in any other domain uh, and apply their skills in the cybersecurity realm, that is going to be a great help for everyone, for, for the nation. You know, it doesn't have to be just for, for themselves or for the company they work for. 
so these are you know my my thoughts on these the questions you had is there um who is more vulnerable uh to uh, cyber attacks and and breaches is, is it big businesses and or or is it average people like me you know where somebody's trying to you know pilfer money out of my account um which i wish him luck with i'm trying to pilfer money out of my account all the time um but <laughs> is is it um who is likely to be more secure the home system or a a, a big business with with a lot of technology i think that the person and business that puts more thought into their security is the one that's going to be more secure so we've seen huge businesses collapse with a terrible and very costly cyber attack the equifax breach ended up costing the company over a billion dollars in what happened you know with the breach response and everything that went down afterwards and the lawsuits and everything else so you could be very big, but the security can have certain problems or certain loopholes or, you know, and and maybe there aren't any. Maybe you were secure, but the criminals found a way. They lured somebody into giving them access. They threw um, a USB key in the parking lot. Somebody plugged it into a computer at work to see what it was or who it belonged to. Uh, and that way they infected the network with malware that nobody could understand what went wrong. So it could be like that. If, and as, as far as people go, you know, everybody is subject to potential fraud. We get emails every single day. We get SMS messages. Uh, just today, my sister called a cable company. She wanted to make some changes in her account. The minute she hung up the phone, she got a an SMS message that was actually a fraudulent message. So that was, you know, something that just happens to everyday people all the time. It's just being, you know, a little wiser about it and understanding that there are risks nowadays, uh, knowing a little bit what they might look like. Uh, and, and that goes for everyone, for big businesses, to the employees that have to sit in front of the computer all day, or just everyday people, you know, that might receive these kinds of uh, messages. Does lock your doors and windows mean something different in this age of uh, cybersecurity? No, it's the same thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> any company should still have basic security, right? You want to, let's say you have uh, some servers or whatever, you want, or, or you have someplace a data center or you're maybe even renting from a cloud provider. You want to make sure it's physically secure, right, that it's somewhere that's locked up, that there's a guard, and some of the compliance and regulation actually demands it, that there's going to be an alarm, a guard, a lock, whatever needs to be, a certain height of a fence. So you want to make sure that that is secure, just like you would secure your home. And you want to also make sure that your network has these basic perimeter defenses. You can't go without them. You're going to have a firewall. You're going to have uh, an intrusion detection uh, solution and so on. You want to make sure that these very basic things are still in place because defense is always in layers. So one layer falls, you want to have another one. You want to make the attacker's way in as hard and as challenging as possible. Is there, um, uh, are there reliable resources where people can, can research this and teach themselves and, and learn how to protect themselves better? Yes, absolutely. 
There is a great uh, organization in the United States. It's called the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Anybody can go to the NIST and just search the NIST. There are very, very robust guides on just about everything that has to do with cybersecurity. Also, the CISA is the, another American organization that helps critical infrastructure and, and everybody in the United States, every company, be more secure. If it's individuals, the FBI has a ton of information about types of fraud and statistics and where to report fraudulent cases or cybercrime of all kinds. So there's really a lot of uh, a lot of resources in the United States that are available to anyone. It doesn't cost anything. All you need is a computer and a search engine. Well, this is uh, this has been fascinating. Um, we're almost out of time, Limor, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work. Um, do you have a website you'd like to share? Yes, I'd love to. Um, the website is ibm.com slash security, where there's, again, more resources and more information. IBM Security has a great blog called securityintelligence.com. That is where we release information about what attackers are doing and how they're doing it, and you can get so much information there. It doesn't cost a thing. You can browse anytime you want. Uh, and uh, last but not least, for smaller organizations, if you want to get a ransomware guide, I wrote one called uh, The Definitive Guide to Ransomware. It's published by IBM. You get that for free as well. So those are three things that I'm glad to share with our audience today. Is it, um, is it for the most part, effective to have a, uh, a backup on a different server um, to protect against uh, ransomware attacks? Absolutely. It's part of the protection. Right, having backups anyway is a business practice that you should have because something a lightning could strike or flood. It doesn't matter. You need to have data backups somewhere, and you need to have redundancy. So have it in more than one place, and also the backups should not be connected to the everyday life network at all times, because if an attacker manages to compromise that network, they'll easily have access to the backups as well and encrypt them. And this has happened many times. Even you know, even being able to, attackers being able to cross over to the cloud or vice versa, come from the cloud into the uh, underlying network. So these things have to be separate as much as possible in order to enable one of them to remain clean. Uh, so yeah, backups are still a definite best practice that every organization should have. Well, my guest is uh, Limor Kesem, the uh, principal consultant for cyber crisis management at IBM Security. Limor, thank you so much for spending this time uh, and your knowledge and expertise uh, with me and the listeners this morning, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. We're going to take a uh, short break here in, in just a moment or two, but I, I do want to remind you that there is a primary election going on in uh, Flint and Genesee County today. Um, there's a, a GOP uh, primary for governor that's been uh, very interesting to watch. Flint has uh, a mayoral race that some people are are tracking and following, and we'll have commentary and analysis about those and other things from today's election tomorrow 
on Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Jan Worth-Nelson. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney General and we got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. 
Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. what was making the factory go. It was IBM, it was Univac, it was all those gears going clickety-clack. Dear, I thought automation was keen till you were replaced by a 10-ton machine. It was that computer that tore us apart, dear. Automation broke my heart. There's an RCA 503 standing next to me, dear, where you used to be. Doesn't have your smile, doesn't have your shape, just a bunch of punch cards and light bulbs and tape, dear. You're a girl who's soft, warm, and sweet, but you're only human, and that's obsolete. Though I'm very fond of Dear, automation's not for me. It was automation, I'm told. That's why I got fired and I'm out in the cold. How could I have known? When the 503 started in to blink, it was winking at me, dear. I thought it was just some mishap when it sidled over and sat on my lap. But when it said, I love you, That's when I pulled out its plug. (laughs) 
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Spreading like a plague And POTUS and his lackeys Have been nothing if not vague Well then you've got to trust the CDC And listen well Unless you want to bid our free society Farewell There is a Super bad transmittable Contagious awful virus And if we don't act quick and social distance It will mire us In a stretch of quarantine That lasts until July A super bad transmittable Contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. 
If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the lesson to July. Oh, super bad, transmittable. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.